Hey folks, this is Boris Shabess, and you're listening to The Sequel Show. If you're new to the show, this is a space I use to talk about all things data and data-driven operations with some of my favorite people from across the industry. Some of these conversations are one-on-one, sometimes we do group conversations, and even sometimes we get into hearty debate about the role of data teams and data technology and all the changes going on in our industry. This week, I was joined by one of my favorite leaders in the data ecosystem, Igor Grasnyov, who is the co-founder and CTO of the data observability company, Big Eye. We talked about his time at Uber, how you can leverage computer engineering principles when you're working with data, what it means to use this term, keeping the lights on when you're working on data, and the future of the Big Eye platform and where things are going when it comes to data warehouses. He also gave me a great story about this crazy bug uh, working on Vertica. So you might enjoy that. Uh, without further ado, I give you Igor. Igor, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So listen, you and I have met a couple times, but let's introduce you to the whole wide world and and give people kind of like your high level cliff note bio and then we'll dive in. I would be happy to. So I'm Igor, I'm the co-founder and CTO at Big Eye. We are a data observability company. I got started in data pretty much at my first job straight out of college. I joined an enterprise software company that had a little skunkworks project to try to figure out how to do better call center analytics and the this was 2012 and so they started uh, using hadoop because hadoop was all the rage then and i was just writing raw MapReduce hadoop jobs <laughs> at some point in time and we were using a tool called datamir which is surprisingly still around i walked by their office wow. on second street which is their company was amazing it was effectively build Excel spreadsheets, and then those Excel spreadsheets will get translated into MapReduce. I think I thought it was genius. It was a MapReduce via Excel spreadsheets. Wow. It's like actuating an API using a spreadsheet. Yeah. It was a beautiful product. Very interesting. After that, I joined a company called One King's Lane. They used to be an e-commerce company. They've since been acquired by Bed Bath & Beyond. And there I was one of the first people working on data. My mentor and good friend and at the time boss, Alex Bahuth, he joined One King's Lane. They pretty much told him, you now have to run the data engineering team. He said, well, I need to hire people who can learn data engineering really quickly. And so I joined and we did all of the things that you would imagine a data platform team doing. Data infrastructure, ETL tooling, helping with data modeling. We brought in Looker and this is 2014 looker we had people come up from santa cruz and pitch us on it and that's we... by the way igor it's one of those things that i think people especially now in pandemic it's harder for people to visualize it but one of the things that i try to explain about silicon valley to people who don't know it is especially for business products like we're all kind of down the street from each other and yeah. it's very true that we'll, we'll get demos of our stuff we'll kind of meet at the coffee shop and like i remember one of the earliest demos of of census was you know, at a cafe and the guy's like, can you show it to me? And I was like, well, it's a prototype. But he's like, yeah, I just want to see it. Like pop open your laptop. Let's go. It's one of the superpowers, I think, of our town that is people don't think about because they just think about the money. 
Yeah, I I actually think that's the main reason that tech is still so big and that the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area is the tech hub of the world is because everyone is here. You can walk down the street, you can meet someone for coffee. I mean, maybe even if they're in Palo Alto, great, that's a 30-minute, 40-minute car yeah. ride and you can I I agree with you. This I have the same experience when we just started Big Eye. I remember literally just meeting people in coffee shops, going to their office, getting into like a tiny little conference room and be like, do you want to look at my product? Please check it out and give me some feedback on it. It's actually, it's amazing. And the fact that people are also willing to sit down with you for half an hour, for an hour, look at your product, give you some feedback, tell you what they think. I think that's also a pretty unique trait. Yeah. That's one of those things that, that I always accentuate to people is you don't have to be anybody for to get the benefit of this. You just have to be here. And I knew someone who was building a static analysis tool. Right? It's a real nerdy developer tool. They didn't know how to get it in front of people, and they just came out here for a couple of weeks and went to some man, random meetups, and they were random guys, and they just showed it to people. And lo and behold, the team at Uber just started using it because they saw it at this like meetup and you know that changed everything. That's a great story. I th- and there's so many stories just like that. You have an engineer look at a project, they're interested, they start poking around, they tell their uh, friends, and next thing you know, it's a massive company behind it. Yeah. So is that, so I know you went, you were at Uber for a while. Is that, was that directly after One King's Lane? That was directly after One King's Lane. I joined Uber in late 2014. They were at the time scaling up their data team. I mean, they didn't really have a data team. They had a couple of engineers working on Postgres and trying to make replicas. They just got Vertica set up, but they realized that data's a whole different beast relative to just applications and software. And so they brought in myself as well as I think I joined with seven other people within this uh, within two, a two-week span. And we were the early data warehouse team there. And so got we it. did the same thing that we did at I uh, did at One King's Lane, which was infrastructure and tooling and everything, but now at a hundred times the pace and scale. Yeah. <laughs> Add a bunch of zeros to that. Yeah. And it was an experience for the first year. We were just focused on really stability, making sure the warehouse stays up, people can run the reports, migrating all the data into it. This was a interesting time in Uber's history because it was going not just the but not just the data side was going through the transition from Postgres replicas to consolidated data warehouse on Vertica, but also the company itself was going through a transition from a monolith to microservices. And right. so not only did we have to get the data from the monolith into the warehouse, we then had to start adapting to all the microservices that were, that were getting built out. Right. And so there was a lot of tooling, a lot of conversations, just trying to figure out what the right platform and infrastructure looks like there. And then starting in late 2015, early 2016, I started doing a lot more embedded work with teams and specific analytic projects. So I met my co-founder, Kyle, on the experimentation platform team. I was the data engineering counterpart. He was my data science counterpart. And we were building a unified analytics platform for all EB tests across Uber, because up until now you have data scientists and analysts just running SQL queries and figuring it out and shoving it into a notebook and best of luck. Uh, So we wanted to unify that, have a central reporting tool, enter your experiment name, we'll show you that your key metrics and results. From there, 
I worked. I then did a short stint on ad tech. Realized that it is not my favorite uh, space to be in. We built a framework for build, uh, pulling data from all the ad ad providers. So Facebook, Google, right, what what have you? Isn't it interesting, by the way, when you work with those platforms, both from a ingestion or actually, by the way, the other way, they just they're very comfortable with dealing with a lot of zeros as well. I found they are very comfortable dealing with it. I, they are great at the scale part of it. They are terrible at the data modeling part of it. Yes, yes. It's a great way to think about it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> they are 100% built for a scale, but the biggest challenge in working with ad tech data was just consolidating into a central model and then figuring out, okay, well, you get this field from Facebook actually is the campaign ID, but then Google calls it campaign underscore UUID or something like that. And then someone else calls it a ad campaign and you never know. And then you have to normalize all of that. And the reporting becomes a total nightmare. Uh, It was an interesting project from a technical perspective, just trying to unify a data model and figure out how to express it extensively to the rest of your ad networks. But from a emotional perspective, definitely not my cup of tea. (laughs) From an emotional. Uh, All right, hold on. I want to... I've, there's been a thread going on in my mind because, you know, you've already like this is already a rich career after almost a decade for you. How did that first company entice you to go join a data team? Like you're you're an engineer, computer science by background, right? I am. So I actually have a bachelor's in computer science and economics. And coming out of college, I thought I was going to be a quant. I wanted to go do quant trading or something related to finance industry, hedge funds, something like that. And... I actually, again, going back to Alex Behuth, uh, who I met him at a career fair because he came, went to UC Davis. I went to UC Davis. Okay. I went to a career fair. He was there. We chatted. We really liked each other. He said, come in for an interview. I went in. I did an interview and I got an offer. And so it was a weird coincidence where I met the right person at the right time. It was the right situation. And I was like, I'll do the software thing. Like I, I enjoy building software at the end of the day. That's what I want to do. And it just so happened that his team was working on this analytics project. So I think it was just a weird aligning of fates that had it been any other project, had it been any other company, maybe I would never have done data. Who knows? Wow. Wow. Yeah. People think, you know, when you think of decisions that are like consequential, you'd never know them in the moment, right? For me, by the way, I also had a path not taken where my first job offer like out of graduate school was either work at, you know, big tech or a hedge fund, a famous one now called Citadel, which was not as big back then as it is now or not as infamous. It was already successful. And I was also like you, it's like intriguing, right? There's something about there's something about mathematics of high finance that feels very intriguing, but I think I've for sure I'm happier not having gone down that path. I think I am as well. That said, I am a big fan of fintech. And I was especially interested when Lending Club really got right. uh, started taking off because it's perfect. They're using, I thought that there was such a good opportunity to use all of this data that they're able to collect in order to like reduce risk for investors, in order to get better interest rates for the people taking on loans. I thought they had a great opportunity. It's kind of sad to see that they have effectively become a bank. They're part of Radius now. But 
I think the fintech movement is just getting started and you see a lot of online banks and a lot of lending lending programs and like pay advances and Mint was obviously was probably their original fintech, a consumer fintech company. And so I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think maybe at some point in time, you and I might end up working closer to finance than we think. All right. Here's what I'll say. So, so yes, I mean, that old meme of like eventually everything, every product that lives long enough becomes, uh, has a fintech component to it. And I'm sure Uber does somewhere in there. The thing that I will say that we probably find subconsciously attractive, something I think a lot about for data professionals, by the way, is engineering, right? Computer engineering, software, is very leveraged as a human activity in a way that most other people do not relate to, right? This idea that a unit of work is infinitely scalable. And, you know, I remember when I was just starting to work, there was a website made by one guy. It was called, it was like a dating app called Plenty of Fish, which was like long before Tinder and all these things. And it was made by one guy who worked like one hour a week on it. And it was like ASP.net webpage. And it was just like, it just worked. It just printed money. It was one of the earliest Google AdSense companies. And the, that's something that's very attractive, right? Like when I worked at Microsoft, it was like a single product decision or line of code impacts millions, if not hundreds of millions, if not like nearly a billion people, right? And that's a high. And I think finance, because it underpins everything, you have a similar kind of feeling probably, which is like I'm directing capital or I'm enabling capital to move where it couldn't move before. And that's super kind of empowering underneath everything. I I agree with you. I think the best example in my head for this is always Craigslist. Hmm. The original Craigslist, it was definitely written by one guy named Craig. And I even think even now there may be tens of people. Yeah, I think it's in the tens. It's no more than tens. Yeah. But it's massively successful. Everyone right. in the United States knows what Craigslist is. And it's true. I that ability to scale yourself well. I actually think it's almost easier to do it at a smaller organization like Craigslist than it is to do at a larger organization like Uber, for example. Yeah. I mean, there's that, there's the whole, like, I guess, adage of you're a cog in the machine. Like, if you're in a big tech, you're just like, it doesn't matter what you do. But at the end of the day, everything matters. Someone's going to touch your code. Someone's going to use your product. Someone's going to read your document. Whatever it is, you're making some sort of difference. I think the hardest part about larger companies is that there you need to get so many people on the same page in order to actually get anything done and in order to actually make a difference that yeah. the friction of having to get so many people on the same page is what's hard. If you're Craig and you got 10 people who you're working with, you go to the 10 people, you're like, we're going to do this today. And they're like, yep, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. And there you go. No, it's true. And if you even think back, this is now quaint as a concept because it's truly disappeared now. But it used to be that software was something you made and then you could just ship it as is and it would stay working, you know, for long periods of time. It wasn't delivered as a service. It wasn't, you know, something that you had to maintain as a kind of running system, which a lot of what we do, right, as software engineers now and as by the way, I, I, data teams of all sorts is like keeping the lights on, right? Just making sure the, the dashboard doesn't go down, right? And 
I was trying to explain it to my dad once too. It's like he's like, "Isn't it finished the software?" And I'm like, "Well, it's kind of like the, the water company. You still need someone to like make sure things are running." But imagine, you know, you like the video game Prince of Persia was made by one guy, right? And then that's it. And then the game just sold itself after that. And and there's marketing to do, but there, the game is a single artifact that doesn't even need to be uh, maintained. <laughs> Data is exactly the same way, and you're totally right. A lot of it is keep the lights on. If you look at data pipelines, what, like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I mean, it's what you have a file that gets delivered onto an SFTP site, or maybe you get an email once a month that says, well, here's your report for the last month, enjoy. And that's it. Reports delivered, files there. There's a well-known process to do it. Someone knows exactly what's going on, and... You have your data and you're working with it. Now you have like all these Kafka data sources, microservices with all their own transactional uh, databases, and you need to sync all of those and uh, pull them into your data warehouse. Now you're talking about something that is constantly changing and constantly evolving. Data is never done in the same way that software now is never done. Yeah. Now people are going to take that for granted, but that was that's a shift, right? Like to your point, like that that it wasn't always like this. You know, even I talked to so many people in data who are in finance organizations, right? Like if you don't work at Uber, like it's very common that you're a BI analyst reporting to a CFO, right? And even that world historically is end of quarter, end of year. Accountant comes in, runs the numbers, CFO runs the numbers and like writes them down and like prints it. PDFs it, whatever, and maybe even makes a forecast for next year. And like that's it. And then it's an artifact. It is it's not a dashboard, it's an artifact. And I think a lot of this, you can see the same thing in the data pipelines and the data infrastructure as well. Before, I mean, when we were at One King's Lane, when we were at Uber, our data warehouse was Vertica. And right. Vertica was here as a piece of software. They delivered an RPM package and you went on your on your physical server or AWS server, doesn't really matter at that point, but you went to your server and you installed the package and that was a node. And then you created more nodes and you had to manually manage all of this. Mm-hmm. And so because there was so much complexity in doing that, the software had to move slower. Vertica released an update once every, what, like six months for... Uh, a major release. Once upon a time, that was fast. <laughs> Once upon a time. Right. And now you have Snowflake and you get an email from Snowflake once a month saying, by the way, here's the latest patch set and this yeah. is what we're doing, this is what we're changing. And they can do that because the infrastructure can move faster now. But because the infrastructure can move faster, that means everything else can move faster. Yeah. And this is why, really, this is why we started Big Eye is because Data is exploding. No one knows what it looks like. It's always breaking. And now it's breaking at an even faster rate because there's just so, it changes so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. We should start monitoring like the second derivative or something, right? It's just like. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In the near future, a lot of it's going to boil down to what data do you actually care about? I mean, even we here at Big Eye with our own customers, a lot of times we ask them, great, let's, you care about monitoring your most important data sets. What are your most important data sets? And a lot of times people don't know because there's just so many data sets and so many disparate use cases for them. No one's going to be able to give you a straight answer. And I think that's going to be one of the most interesting challenges in the next couple of years is great. Yeah. Data exploded. There's a lot of information you can collect. There's a lot of information you can use for some application, for some product. Which ones actually matter? Which ones are correct? Which ones should you be using? 
Yeah. And identifying those without having to ask someone, I think is going to be a really interesting challenge. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right that if I think to continue with this analogy of the old, you know, the old software world, the first era was, you know, just can I get data? Then it was like, I have too much. And we spent a long time in the Hadoop era and, and up to Snowflake now where it's like, how do I store this deluge? Now we know how to do that. And there's basically no limits to storing. And now it's how do I curate and find sift through this, right? Which is kind of like the internet, man. Like when I, now I'm going to date myself, but when I first connected to the internet with my dial-up modem, it was a thing you could kind of, it, it was actually like right on that cusp of feeling infinite, but kind of not. Like it was, you could just go explore. You just go to a website and click another and then find another link. And it was almost certainly like not something a single human could walk through. But there's a reason why Yahoo was the original thing, which is like it's just a directory of links. And then that lasted, you know, half like a decade or half a decade. And then that was no longer possible. And then it was like infinite data. And now we must sift through it. Right. So you're right. I'm sure people are going to start to invent corporate search engines for data. And, and there's going to be someone with relevance, like magical relevance algorithms. That's what a data catalog really should be, yes. is your search yes. engine for data. Yeah. I think I think catalogs are especially interesting in this in this regard because they should be that central point of here is what here is where your data is, what it looks like, what you should be using it for, who knows about it, how to use it, what state is it in. And I think as data grows exponentially within an organization. Data catalogs now have the extra task of then saying, and here is the stuff that you care about, and here is stuff maybe that you don't care about, and maybe you should just stop loading and stop using because it hasn't been updated in a year. Do you really want to be using that data to yeah. update your dashboard? Yeah. I think we should probably do it like, a, what is it, electronics, like planned obsolescence. Like people who generate data should just like manufacture the obsolescence of the data, built it into the system. I, I would love to have exploding tables. I would love right? to be able to say, this table will self-destruct in a year. Because if you're still using it in a year and you haven't uh, updated a data model or this hasn't been consolidated into something else, then we're probably doing something wrong. Yeah. And it's a forced timer. That's it. Code gets destroyed, table gets deleted. That's it. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah. No, I think there's so many... You know, to go back to your point about one of the things about succeeding and having leverage in a large organization is about figuring out how to play humans, right? Like, and that's why politics matters in a large organization. In the same way, you know, there's so many things we just take for granted because it's the way it's always been. The policy, if it's done once, then people just assume, well, we're just going to keep doing that forever. But maybe those things should also have expirations, right? There's so many human group behaviors that are just accretive of like, well, this occurred. And so like now this is just part of the rule set forever. And I think a lot about even think of our society or our government, right? Like there's no planned like reset to like maybe 30 years later we should go, maybe that was not the best way to run, I don't know, like the, the franchise tax system and like maybe we should have a different model. But all we have is an append log. <laughs> and organizations are no different, right? In terms of the human rules, like it's very hard to reset the system. Yeah, it, it, it is. And I think that's part of what why there's just so much resistance to moving to, I mean, even the cloud, even, like not let's not even talk about the data cloud. Let's just talk about like infrastructure cloud. There is still so much market to be captured for moving organizations into AWS, GCP, uh, Azure, whatever your cloud of choice is. They all post amazing numbers every quarter still. Right. 
and they're still growing because there's just so many people. And a lot of this just boils down to resistance to change. And I think that is in contrast with being able to move fast. And you have to just pick one. You're either going to move fast and change a lot, or you're not going to change and you're not going to move fast. And I think organizations are going to start realizing this and it's going to be a competitive advantage to be able to move fast and assume that, yes, okay, great. That's going to come with a lot of changes in processes, changes in systems, changes in organizational structures and policies, but we need to take on that risk and take on that work in order to stay innovative, stay ahead of the curve yeah. and be top of the game. Do you think you could identify what how One Kings Lane and Uber realized they need it was because you were brought in, right? You and your team were effectively kind of brought in to two occasions. Yep. What were the what broke? Like what what helped the companies in your mind? Because you were kind of from the outside in, but what do you think they saw that was like now it's time for us to invest and change the way we're doing this? That's a good question. For One Kings Lane, I don't know if I could pinpoint it. My best guess would be they actually saw that, oh, we can actually capture meaningful results out of data. They started hiring some data analysts. They were working off, again, the MySQL replica, and they were saying, okay, well, we can do some product analytics here and under, uh, start doing merchandising forecasting. And that was extremely useful. And they said, Got well, it. It, w- it would be great if we also had web traffic data so we know what people are looking at when they're clicking on. And so, but that, you can't shove that into MySQL. We, so you need a data warehouse. At Uber, it was purely a scale play, I think. Uber managed to scale surprisingly well on a bunch of Postgres replicas. They sharded Postgres by region, which made a lot of sense for a little while until you have San Francisco, which was 80% of the traffic. And then every other region was, every other node was practically dead. Also Was it really that intense at one point? The Delta was that massive? In 2014, US West, so San Francisco, LA, Seattle, they, they accounted for at least three quarters of the traffic, I think, at least from a data volume perspective. Yeah. And so at that point, it just became a, all this data needs to be centralized. Also, the ability to join in product data with, again, with event streams from the app, with information about dispatches and which driver was dispatched when and how far away were there, because this is when dispatch was really starting to evolve and change and be becoming much more intelligent about who should, which driver should be picking up which riders. And in order to do that, you need a lot of data processing and you need all that data in a central location. So you can actually start tying dispatches together and trips and drivers being online and going offline and all that information needed to be centralized. So hence the need for a data warehouse. I think the biggest thing that are coming after that is great. All this data is in, in one place and we're using it for all these uh, report, all this reporting, all this analytics, except for the data breaks all the time. And the data broke in many ways, just not getting into the database because the upstream database query timed out or like the file wasn't there or the like the write took too long or whatever happened on the warehouse was obviously the the one. This is like physical category of failures, right? Versus semantic kind of failures. And then, yeah. And then there were the semantic failures, especially as we were moving to microservices about like IDs need to match up and we need to be able to join across data sets. And sometimes you can, it's like, are we actually storing the right information? Are we exposing it? Do the numbers make sense? For example, if you see a record that says a driver went offline and then immediately after that, a driver went offline again, okay, it's like, well, which one is it? At what time did they go offline? And so 
you started getting into, now that you're starting to pull all this data in and starting using it, that's when you start thinking about the reliability, the, uh, the quality of it. And I think that, that was a massive effort for at least six months to just get a yeah. solid data model, understand the actual semantics of the data, write all the assertions, make sure that we're doing all the uh, checking of the data in the like modeled data schema so that we had a source of truth for this information. Mm -hmm. Because before it was just raw data getting joined all the time. <laughs> right. Well, but like, here's a question, G given what you said just a second earlier, there must have been failures that didn't matter, right? Because there was data that, like, there could be data that's wrong, but there's no business process that's affected. You know? The tree fell, but no one's there to hear it, you know? So these failures that you were experiencing that required the, you know, the improvements, was it because each one of those was tied to a live business kind of situation? Yep. Okay. If the tree falls and nobody hears it, then nobody gets to complain to the data team about it. Right. Okay. So the only the only fallen trees that the data team hears about are the ones that landed on someone's head. And trips data, again, dispatch and driver data, user data, all of that is being looked at all the time. And were you stack ranking? So I assume at various points in Uber's life, everything was on fire for the data team, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah. Some form, right? Like at some scale, I think you and I have talked about this, like at some scale, something is always broken, right? It's like if the law of large numbers, right? At some point, if 1% of things are broken, at some point, that means it's at all times, at least one thing is broken. Right. And so you'll have bugs inbound, I assume, from all these various teams. Was it your org that would decide the, you know, the trip data for the payment of drivers is more important than the, you know, rider promotions team? Like, how did that prioritization work? Because you are the single point of, of prioritization. That is a great question. Everything was equally important. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, the point in time that I'm thinking about in Uber's data story is not a happy place to be, but we, at one point, actually had a policy for, I think, about a month or two on the warehouse team where Monday mornings, no traffic happens other than anything that has to do with driver payment reporting because we had to do weekly, okay. weekly analysis on that. And we every region did their own reporting. So okay. let's say you're a, G a GM in Paris, you got a GM in New York, you got a GM in San Francisco and Chicago or all, all around the world. They're all running the queries at the same time, pretty much. Like starting Sunday night in, in Asia and then going all the way through Monday evening in Pacific. Got it. And so they're all running their queries at the same time. So we at some point just instituted a policy that says we were told, but effectively this came from the executive level, which said this is the most important reporting that needs to get done. This has to happen on Monday. Done. And great. That means everyone else is a lower priority because... Our head's on the chopping block if this reporting yeah. doesn't go through, so nobody else can run any queries. I mean, at some point, we even like actually told shut down the whole warehouse and told people, send us your queries, we will run them for you, and then send you a CSV. And we oh, did wow. that for about we did that for a week because there was this absurd Vertica bug that we ran into. This where, is the good stuff. This is what I wanted to hear, Igor. Yes, yes, tell me. <laughs> the absurd Vertica bug was actually. <laughs> So we had a table where there were null values in a join key. Okay. And the interesting part is there were null values on both sides. 
but it was acceptable to have null values in this key. We should have just been filtering it out. The problem is the database was still, because Vertic is a uh, MPP database, you uh, distribute your join keys across the warehouse to shuffle them, do the join on each independent node. If you have 90% of your values being null, and it still tries to shuffle all those nulls into a single node, that node now gets overwhelmed and it's a single point of failure. And so we, it took us a few weeks to find that. And anytime a query ran that was doing that join that was large enough, it would fail. But it had to be large enough because sometimes it would pass because right. if it's small, if it's small and it shuffles fast enough, then it's okay. Mm-hmm. So that was a hell of an experience. We got deep into Vertica internals. We were on the phone with their engineers. We were saying, how does this work? If my explain plan looks like this, what does it look like? And I mean, this is my first run in with like, why does data quality matter? Because if we ha- if we knew that there were a bunch of nulls in this table. Maybe that would have raised the flag earlier. Maybe if we were alerted that you have null values in your join key, is that okay? We might have said, you know what, maybe it's not. Maybe we should ask somebody about this. But we were so overwhelmed with the rest of the infrastructure stuff that we didn't have any monitoring on this. And we just... I like that this is like there's query planning at the core computer science level, right, where the database makes a query plan. And then there's the humans that are the Uber data team, which are basically doing a like, we'll schedule your query when the time is right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was, yeah, we were, we were human airflow. We were pretty much like, when, when is your, when do you need this query run by? Okay, great. We got two hours to run this query. Let's stagger them out. Are there, do you think there are orchestrators that are where you define your schedule, not in terms of like when it runs, but your last acceptable time to get result? And then let the system, you know, kind of figure out when things should run. That'd be interesting. I think that would be very interesting. I think it's very difficult to predict how long a job would actually run. Right, right. Because now you get into dependency uh, graphs and you're saying, well, okay, the job runs on average for half an hour, but the P90 is an hour and a half. So... Now you, yes. you have way too So you're focus. absolutely right about that. Then there's like humans will lie and they'll be like, I want it right now. And I don't care what your system yeah. says. 8 a.m. I want it at 8 a.m. because I'm going to look at it first thing. <laughs> but no, but we see this. I mean, this is one of those things that people, when you give them the tool to see how long things take, they kind of obsess about that. And like, how, do, how come it can't be faster? And I often have to be there going like, you know, let's say census is syncing like a, you know, a lead into your CRM, right? Like, are you going to send an automated email? Is there a commitment to sending it within 37 seconds? Like, or is it just you want it there by the end of the hour? Like, they'll often admit to unbelievably loose latencies. Like, if I ask customers really, like, what is the latency you need? They'll be like, oh, like, if that's by the end of the day, that's fine. But then you're behaving like you need it to be working within, like, 38 seconds. And that, I don't know how to solve for this human trait where they're like, if it looks like it could go fast, they want it fast. So... At Big Eye, we have to collect information from your warehouse in order to understand the data quality and the state of mm-hmm. it to do the observability. I mean, that really is what it is. We need to collect information. And we actually just abstract this away from our users. And we say, how often do you want to collect new data, new information from your warehouse? And we just have a dropdown. And the dropdown says every so often, every one hour, two hours, four hours, six hours, every day, every 70, uh, three days, whatever it is. And we just 
hide it behind a dropdown because then that lets us figure out, great, when should we be running this so that we don't run everything at midnight because that's yeah. the most popular run, zero, yeah. zero star. Because if we just let people enter when they want to run it, they'll just enter zero, zero star. So Igor, we resisted for three years at letting people type in a cron expression. We've given up on this one. We've given up on this fight too. It's it's impossible. It, uh, yeah. And, and this uh, really like, the way I think about it is like, please just tell me your set of constraints your, and then we will solve for it, right? We can do that. And, and you're right that you can't predict the runtime of things, but you can get very good at it over time. And like, I think eventually, think about it, even your Snowflake, you're going to be, you're going to be managing multiple extra small warehouses, a few medium ones, an L1 for here and there. And knowing that I think there's going to be a, a, almost a need to kind of warehouse uh, plan, right? And the it may be the right move to to run all your ETL on a medium warehouse or two XS, like two, two extra smalls. Like, it, I don't know. It really depends on kind of the real needs. And your naive approach to this might be way expensive or way over-provisioned, right? Like it's... Or even more interestingly, if you already have a warehouse that you're that was spun up and you're paying for, mm-hmm. then could you piggyback workloads onto that warehouse without yeah. having to spin, uh, spin up one that's already suspended? And so this gets into really interesting problems around... How do you optimize for the constraint, like for the system's current state? And I think running things on a cron that that is inferred from people's desires is one part of this. But I think there is a lot of interesting work left to be done around, given the current state of a system, of a database, of a warehouse. What is the optimal way to run these things. Should yeah. I batch these up into small queries? Should I run them all in one large query? Should I just wait because warehouse is overloaded? Should I spin up a new warehouse in Snowflake? I think there's a lot of really interesting opportunity here. Yeah. And we nerd out on that all the time. And and so that we unfortunately can't get there with people, the, the contract between the user, right? And the the execution system has to be on the order of how urgent like categories of urgency or, or some latency kind of upper bound, something, right? You want to almost decide, d- tell me your P90, you know, and then I'll resolve it from there, right? Rather than, well, I would like it to run every Wednesday and Tuesday and Thursday at 318 and like, because I think that's good. And we're like, that doesn't tell us anything about giving us the flexibility to run it when we think is ideal, right? Yep. There's a, there's an interesting problem in a lot of data teams where they will often run ETLs every hour because they mm-hmm. can, because their system will support it. Mm-hmm. And all of this data updates 24 times a day for a nightly report. And it's never, ever used again. And I think there's a lot of interesting information that you can figure out about how the data is used. Again, going back to what data is important. What, when is it used? How is it being used in order to help guide how to think about it, when to load it, when to check it, how high quality does it need to be? Right. Maybe it, how important it is should inform that. Maybe you just need to make sure that, okay, it's being loaded once a day and that's it. You don't really need any other assertions, whereas data that you're using all the time, you need to check foreign key constraints and you need to check format uh, formats and ranges and distributions and all of that. And yeah. so I... It all comes down to what's important to you, the user, the data consumer, 
And how do you build systems that optimize for that and can use that information in order to make more efficient use of your infrastructure and of your time? Yeah, I think, you know, we always use this. It's overwrought, but I think it, we, you and I did it uh, here again today a lot, which is, you know, kind of always make parallels to everything we've learned in the realm of software engineering and how can we pass that down to 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 everyone who works in data. And everything you talk about, it's like we're still not at the stage where people are profiling, right, their 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 data. And, and even then, it's not, there's profiling in the narrow sense of like profiling a query, but then there's, just as in software, there's a big difference between profiling your app code for like a function versus the entire system, which involves 12 microservices and like end-to-end latencies. And you're totally right. It, it's almost like you want to be able to measure that and then figure out what is off relative to what people need. And the thing that no one's ever resolved, and by the way, I think this is still true in programming as well, like in computer programming, is no one knows how to annotate the cost of things. Like, there's no good way to say this is kind of an extra large, this is kind of a small, this needs to come fast, this doesn't matter. Like, there's no one's come up with a good lightweight way of specifying those things. So, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot still we can do. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's really exciting. And I think there's plenty of opportunities still in the programming and software space. But if you look at Datadog, we are we love Datadog uh, right. here at Big Eye. We use it so much. And they have built a really impressive ability to just look at everything holistically, your whole system. I traced that, uh, yeah. a, an API request the other day that went all the way through to our transactional system and the warehouse that we were hitting, showed how long the query took on the warehouse and where it was waiting in my application. And then I could make decisions off of that. And so they've built a lot of functionality here in order to monitor and, and think yeah. about this. But I agree to your point, they don't have the ability to say, all right, tell us how fast you want this API to be, and then we will tell you where you should go and right? cut down yeah. on time. Yeah, exactly. No, there's, you're right. Datadog is such a good template for where we need to go and, and where Big Eye, I'm sure, is going to go. And it's it's there's so much power just in giving people that visibility and that holistic visibility. I think about it, by the way, at like the, at some point I'm going to try to give people the visibility of like, and then this affected a salesperson who was trying to do this, right? Like, like almost like the humans in the mix too, uh, someday. And, and I'm totally with you. It's, there's a lot more ahead of us than behind us. So yeah. it's, you know, it's fun to think about. Well, listen, Igor, thank you for doing this. You, you know, you and I are just going to have to do this again because this, I think we've, we only scratched the surface of, of, of what's to come, but thanks for the stories. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Boris. Thanks a lot for having me. Well, folks, until next time, this is The Sequel Show. Special thanks to Joe Stevens for our theme song. And thanks to all of you for listening and supporting the show. If you haven't already, subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts to get notified for future episodes.